Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. No matter the outcome, today's vote is legally meaningless. The real election will happen in six weeks when the Electoral College meets in state capitals across the country and casts their ballots. Twice in the past five elections, the Electoral College has overridden the popular vote, calling the integrity of the entire system into question. Although we've all heard of the Electoral College, most people don't seem to know why we have it, how it works, and what we might do to change it. Jesse Wegman is a member of the New York Times editorial board where he's written about the Supreme Court and legal affairs since 2013. His new book, Let the People Pick the President, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College, is published by St. Martin's Press, and I'm very pleased that it brings Jesse Wegman to our show now. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, I keep on saying electoral, but I hear I often hear it pronounced electoral. How, how do you pronounce it? Oh, I'm definitely in your camp. I say electoral. Now, the Electoral College has been around for over 200 years and led to questionable elections in the past. Why haven't attempts been made to abolish it before now, or have they? Well, in fact, there have been more than 800 attempts to amend or abolish the Electoral College uh, in favor of a national popular vote uh, since the founding. It started in 1797, and it continues today. Uh, these attempts have come from left, right, center, every, every place on the political spectrum. Uh, and it's far more than for any other single provision of the Constitution. So I think it just illustrates the degree to which Americans have never really been comfortable with the way that uh, we choose our president. Uh, there were many issues that had to be decided at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. How did the issue of presidential selection fit into it all? Wasn't it one know, of the they, last issues to be decided? It was. Uh, it was actually uh, decided on by a, a committee called the Committee on Unfinished Parts. <laughs> and this was uh, cobbled together in the side room of the convention hall in early September by a few delegates, basically just scrambling to get this thing finished because they knew they had to get it out to the states for ratification or there would be no United States. Uh, they had been debating the issue of presidential selection from almost the beginning, though. It was in the first week of the convention that one of the delegates, James Wilson uh, from Pennsylvania, stood up and said, we need to elect the president by a popular vote. And he stuck to this, uh, uh, you know, conviction all the way through the summer of 1787. He brought on board uh, several of the most important framers, including James Madison, Governor Morris, Rufus King and others, uh, uh, with his argument, which was, uh, I think, a very kind of, in our eyes today, a more modern democratic argument than many of the framers were comfortable with. Uh, but it really was, you know, a debate over how do you choose the executive of a self-governing republic of this size? It had never been done before, never been tried. And the framers just didn't know what they were doing, as they admitted years later. How about the other obvious alternatives, the president selected by Congress or by state governments? Everything was rejected uh, in, in favor of the Electoral College? Yes, uh, they debated this issue, I think, uh, on uh, 21 different days. They had over 30 votes on it. Um, you're right, Congress choosing the president was the default option. Uh, that's the one that came in in the, in, the, in the draft of the Constitution that was being debated at the beginning, it was Congress. Um, some delegates uh, liked that approach. They didn't want the president to just become another tyrant. But the, the, the understanding that developed in the, the sort of consensus was a president chosen by Congress would be uh, beholden to Congress. And so they didn't want to do that. 
Um, they wanted to keep the presidency independent, right? Separation of powers was a, a, a central consideration of this, uh, of this uh, convention. Uh, but then you had, you know, you had a practical problem, which was Americans just, they didn't, there was no national media, there was no uh, transportation network, so people didn't travel far from their homes. And I think many of the delegates were concerned that Americans wouldn't know very much about uh, candidates for national political office. They were happy to have the people voting directly for their members of the House of Representatives. They thought of that as the most important uh, branch of, of government, and they were they were fine with people voting directly for them because they knew their candidates. But when it came to the presidential election, they were afraid they wouldn't. Se- several of them were afraid they wouldn't. And that's why you, you see, that's one of the main reasons you see this intermediary body of electors uh, who are established precisely to... Um, you know, represent the more educated, deliberative, uh, you know, class of men, and of course it's all men at that time, who would then, you know, decide on who was the fittest person to lead the country. So we're actually voting for an elector. Right. You're voting for the electors that uh, serve in your state. Uh, So a state gets, according to the Constitution, each state gets a number of electors that is equal to its representation in Congress. That means you get uh, one elector for every House of, House of Representatives member and one for each of your two senators. And that's pretty much it. The Constitution doesn't say much more about how to choose the president uh, than that. Uh, and when you go to the polls, uh, that's right. You are voting technically for electors who are either going to come from the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate. And if more of your, you know, if you if more people in your state vote for the Democratic candidate, those Democratic electors who've been previously chosen, will go to the state capitol in December and cast their ballots for uh, the, the winner of your state. For the and, Wy- and Wyoming has the fewest electors, California the most, Wyoming three, California 55. But if there are third party candidates, the states appoint separate slates of electors for them? So, uh, sorry, maybe I, I wasn't clear. So every candidate who comes, uh, who, who is running in a state and who is on that state ballot, has a slate hmm. of their own electors. So let's say use California, the example you just gave, 55 electors. Joe Biden has 55 Democratic electors that he's already chosen, and they're waiting for the orders. Uh, if more uh, people in California choose Joe Biden, then California will send all 55 of those electors to the state capitol, and they will all vote for Joe Biden. Same but what about the Working yeah. Part yeah. People's Party, for example, or some of the other parties that may be supporting the candidate of another party, but are a separate party. They don't have a, the electors go with the candidate. So Ah, if there is a candidate, if there's a third party candidate who's on the ballot in a given state, he or she will have that uh, electors equal to the number of electors in that state. So it's really just a, it's a mechanism that allows for uh, the, uh, this body, this electoral college to cast ballots when the time comes in December, this year, it's December 14th. Um, and, and that's how it works. It's, 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 com- it's complicated. It's multi-leveled. It's, it's confusing. I think that's as much a, a, an argument as any that we need to have a different system of choosing the president. I think when most Americans don't even understand how their leader is chosen in a modern representative democracy, that's a real problem. How did slaveholders and their interests contribute to the creation of the Electoral College system? Yes, slaveholders, uh, the, the interest of slaveholding states was, you know, that was central to every major deal that was 
struck at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Um, obviously, the, the slaveholders threatened to walk out if they didn't get uh, extra uh, benefits for extra you know, power in the national uh, government for their slaves. So that's what leads us to the Three-Fifths Compromise. And that is the deal that was struck in the middle of that convention to give the southern states uh, credit in the national uh, legislature in Congress for their slaves. They got to count their slaves as three-fifths of a free white person for the purposes of representation. That translated into, you know, 12 to 14 more members of the House of Representatives across the South than they would have had if they couldn't have counted those slaves. And when you look at how the Electoral College is designed, which is that it, it translates a state's representation in Congress into its power in choosing the president, they get to transfer that three-fifths power into the choice of president. And you see it play out, right? There's, you know, presidents are, are slaveholding Southerners for most of the first 40 years of the nation's life. Uh, the Speaker of the House is often a slaveholding Southerner, just as the majority of the Supreme Court is. It's called, they called it the slave power at the time. And that's because they understood well that those extra electoral votes and those extra members of Congress gave the South outsized power in the national government. You would think that the House of Representatives, which is more representative of the population of each state, would have more power, but they gave more power to the Senate. Uh, well, I mean, they, you mean in, the, in, in terms of the... Uh, no matter how big mean, or small the state, each state gets two senators. So, oh, yeah, as right. has so been pointed yeah. out recently, uh, the... Uh, the, the the Senate is is really misrepresenting the uh, the general populace. That's absolutely right. And the Senate, you know, is another. Uh, in, in, you know, that was also a battle between bigger and smaller states. Obviously, the smaller states wanted to keep equal power with the bigger states. So that that was the other major compromise at the convention. Besides the three fifths clause, was this creation of a body that treated states equally regardless of their size. The House was supposed to be, in theory, a representation of the population, right? So bigger states had more members. Of course, that is immediately distorted and stained, I, I think we can comfortably say, by the creation of the Three-Fifths Compromise, which gives southern states um, credit for people that they don't allow to vote and people who don't, they don't give any human rights to, they hold in bondage, right? So I think really that the, the whole premise of our representative government was, uh, you know, stained from the outset. Didn't Alexander Hamilton write an explanation of the thinking behind the Electoral College in Federalist Number Sixty-Eight? What did he, he did. Uh, What did he envision the electors as as being? Well, let's let's put it this way. Yes, he did. Federal Sixty-Eight is the fullest explanation of what the Electoral College was expected to do. But remember that. Should I ask for my money back from because when <laughs> I having seen Hamilton? Hamilton did a great job of, of, uh, of uh, dramatizing the 1800 election, which was the first real uh, place that Americans got to see the Electoral College completely uh, get, go out of whack. Um, but the, uh, you know, what Alexander Hamilton was saying, which is, you know, a, a fuller version of what we discussed earlier, that, you know, there was going to be this body of deliberative, thoughtful men who would, you know, sit and choose the, you know, the, the best person to lead the country. Remember that the Federalist Papers are basically just our, our propaganda uh, to get New Yorkers, to skeptical New Yorkers, to agree to ratify the Constitution. So even Hamilton didn't totally believe everything he wrote. Um, you know, behind the scenes, this is one of the things I write about in my book. Hamilton is 
uh, freaking out, actually, writing letters behind the scenes because he realizes that even in the first two elections, there is the potential for gamesmanship among the electors that could end up keeping George Washington from winning the White House. So he's, he's already talking behind the scenes about trying to, he talks about throwing away seven or eight votes in federalist friendly states, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, wait, the guy who's talking about an electoral college is supposed to be a body of these thoughtful, deliberative men is actually, you know, rigging the game behind the scenes. Um, I think that just gets to the, the, the really central point that the framers didn't know what they were creating when they made this body, and almost immediately it stopped operating the way that he, they, they believed it would and that they said it would in public. But he was arguing uh, that these electors would be the most enlightened and respectable citizens who would reject charlatans and other unqualified candidates. And of course, we've seen how that's played out. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> he he well, did say that. Um, he, he did say that. Uh, but, you know, I think this is this is the other point is that the framers, when they made the Constitution, they weren't expecting national political parties to develop so quickly, if at all. And as soon as national political parties are a feature of American political life, which was, happened within a decade of the ratification of the Constitution, the whole idea of how that electoral college was supposed to work goes out the window. Because rather than having this body of enlightened, deliberative men making the best choice for the country, you have a party system and you have partisans on both sides supporting their man rather than, you know, the best person in the country. Does that sound familiar? It's because ever since 1796, that's how the Electoral College has operated as a, as a, as a team sport. My guest on Leonard Lopate at large today is Jesse Wegman. His uh, book is called Let the People Pick the President, the Case for Abolishing the Electoral College. Uh, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming online at WBAI.org. When was the system given the name Electoral College, and why call it a college? <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, it, it, they, the framers themselves certainly didn't call it that. It developed, I think the name got adopted during the 19th century, and I don't have a good answer for you about exactly uh, who, who adopted it or when it became uh, a common usage. Uh, but one thing that did clearly happen was that the college or the system, let's say, that the framers designed uh, very quickly stopped being what they thought it would be. And that's because they left most of the key decisions about how the Electoral College would operate in the hands of the states. They did that very deliberately. It says states will appoint their electors in whatever manner the legislature chooses. So that's a really important detail. And by the early 1800s, most states, are, are actually choosing their electors by a popular vote and awarding them based on a, a principle called winner-take-all, which is whichever candidate wins the most popular votes in your state gets all of the state's electors, regardless of how close that margin of victory is. Now, But not all the states followed that rule. No, no. In the early years of right, in the early years of the country, states were experimenting with different rules. They were they were awarding them based on congressional districts, uh, which two still do today. Maine and Nebraska still do it that way. The other forty eight today, and the vast vast majority throughout American history, have always used winner take all. Um, but but just to to drive home that point about the popular vote, there is nothing in the Constitution that gives regular citizens like you and me any right to have any role at all in choosing the president. It is, we, are, we are at the mercy of our state lawmakers. If they let us vote for the, for the uh, electors, then we can do so. If they don't, then we can't. They could award the electors 
they could pick those electors and award them to the candidates themselves however they like, and there's nothing we could do about it. As you said, Maine and Nebraska allocate their vote by congressional district. Do you think that that leads to a fairer system? No. Um, it is a system that at least James Madison said he thought several of the framers envisioned being the most commonly adopted one when they, when they crafted this the system uh, in, in 1787. The problem with the congressional district allocation, just to be clear for those who may not understand how it works, is uh, you, you have a, a state has effectively one elector for each congressional district. So whichever candidate wins a congressional district gets that district elector. And then the candidate who wins the most votes in the state gets those two extras that represent the senators. Um, so Maine and Nebraska do that right now. And it does mean that you know, uh, a Democrat can peel off uh, an elector in Nebraska or a Republican peel off an elector in Maine. That has happened. Both of those things have happened in the last decade. Um, the problem is, uh, as, we've, as we've been learning a lot about in recent years, partisan gerrymandering. And that is when state lawmakers draw legislative district lines that uh, really skew uh, political reality. They carve them up to give themselves and their own party a benefit and to hurt the other party. Right now, those lines have no impact on the, uh, in the presidential election because most states use the winner-take-all rule, so it doesn't matter how people vote within districts. But if we did congressional districting on the national level, you would see all those egregious malformations of democracy and democratic representation transported into the election of the president, and then you would probably have as skewed a result, if not more skewed, than you have today. I assume that the Electoral College system worked satisfactorily during our first two elections when George Washington received unanimous support. But didn't problems with it arise during the election of 1800? Yes. Well, I mean, that was the that was sort of the first real test of the system under uh, in a country where there were political parties. And right, you had Thomas Jefferson and uh, John Adams running. Uh, they were in a rematch of the 1796 election. Um, and as it happened, uh, Jefferson beat Adams uh, fairly comfortably. But because of the way the, this is another example of the way the, the way the French framers designed the system, they hadn't anticipated political parties. You end up having a tie vote uh, between uh, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, his mm. vice president, and uh, or his vice presidential candidate. The, the uh, electors had no way in 1800 to distinguish their votes for the two offices. So it wasn't clear who was going to get to be president and who vice president. They ended up, it ended up uh, throwing the election into the House of Representatives, where over six days they held 36 separate votes to decide who was going to be president. It finally uh, gets resolved in Jefferson's favor. But immediately after that, there are, uh, they, they introduce uh, what would become the 12th Amendment, which resolves that problem. Uh, and we don't have any more tie votes, uh, or we haven't had any more tie votes since then. Well, Aaron Burr, of course, went off and created his own country in the West uh, because he was <laughs> yeah. annoyed that he hadn't won the presidency. But can you explain the importance of the Twelfth right. Amendment? Uh, it was it was introduced during <laughs> Jefferson's presidency to avoid uh, a similar problem to what they'd experienced with, with that election. Right. Uh, the, the main technical fix of the Twelfth Amendment was to uh, uh, allocate, to, to give the electors the ability to say, I want this person as president and this person as vice president, to cast separate presidential and vice presidential uh -huh. ballots so that you wouldn't have uh, what happened in 1800 happen again. 
of course, we're always fighting the last battle, right? So, <laughs> um, you know, while that problem was solved, uh, the, the, the newer problems of a growing country, an expanding democracy, uh, adding more people into the electorate, uh, those things were not dealt with, obviously, by the 12th Amendment. But when I voted, because I've already voted, wasn't I voted voting for both the president and the vice president, not separately? Well, you're voting for a ticket. That's right. Yeah. Um, right. And now we have presidential tickets. Uh, and, and the ticket system began went with the rise of national political parties. Um, so, yes, you don't vote for uh, you don't vote for uh, electors, but the, the electors have two votes. So. You, I'm sorry, you don't vote for uh, you don't you don't cast two votes, but the electors do. Didn't the uh, framers of the Constitution expect electors to vote as they pleased, rather than being well, independent yeah. thinkers capable of making their own decision? Haven't electors almost always followed their party line automatically? Yes, and that's really the that that's really the quickest way to to answer the question about what we call faithless electors, right? So. This gets back to that whole idea that Hamilton writes about in the Federalist Papers, where he says, you know, these are going to be men who deliberate and think independently and choose for themselves who will be the best person, right? This is at a time when, you know, the framers didn't think of a, a popular vote, even in the sense as we think of it today, because there was only a tiny fraction of people, wealthy white men, who were even allowed to vote. Uh, and even those men uh, couldn't have a direct choice in the, in, in the outcome of the election. So... It, the image was of this body of men who would who would think for themselves and perhaps, you know, choose someone that they weren't expected to choose. That, again, ever since the rise of the political party system in America has never been the way the Electoral College functions. Part, you know, electors are partisan actors. They are chosen precisely because they support the Democrat or the Republican. And they almost never break that faith. They almost always, with very, very few exceptions, vote for the candidate they've pledged to vote for. So I just don't think, given the political realities in the country, that faithless electors are ever going to be anything more than a sort of a, a side, uh, you know, interesting side feature. On the other hand, you begin the book with the story of a scheme by a young Democratic uh, elector, Daniel Baca, to persuade 37 Republican electors to switch their votes to Hillary Clinton in 2016. Right. That, and, and I, yeah. Was that a unique so, situation? It was. Uh, there were more uh, faithless electors in 2016. Seven of, seven of the 538 uh, electors in the country uh, were faithless, meaning they voted for someone other than the candidate they were pledged to. That was more than any had, uh, in a single election in the nation's history. But obviously, as I, you know, I tell that story to open the book because it was so full of drama yeah. and intrigue. Uh, I think people were so shocked at Trump's victory that there were these attempts to use the Electoral College as it was purportedly designed by the framers to keep Trump a demagogue, you know, a sort of a, a designing man, as the framers would have called him, out of office. And the story, I think, is revealing in that, you know, the college has never, you know, people were sort of dismissive of this effort that, that I write about in Michael Baca's effort because it was so not what the Electoral College had ever done, right? When you start seeing uh, Hollywood celebrities going online and saying, Alexander Hamilton said, you know, the Electoral College shall choose the most fit leader. It's like, no, no, it's never worked that way. <laughs> so it was just kind of laughable that, that this was even tried. And as I say in that opening chapter, it was totally insane. Uh, it, was an, it was a crazy idea, but these were crazy times. And so it, it, was, it, it, it popped up.
Haven't a number of states uh, passed laws requiring their electors to vote for the state's popular vote winner? Yes, uh, they do. They do. They, it's called, they're called binding laws. They bind their electors. And the Supreme Court actually heard a major case this year, this past term, sorry, the, the new term has just begun, in last term over whether states had the uh, authority under the Constitution to um, require electors to vote a certain way. Uh, they, you know, what states do is if an elector uh, refuses to do that, they can punish them either. They can fine them, which Washington State does. They can replace them. With, they can remove them as an elector and replace them with someone else who will vote the way they were expected to, as Colorado does. Um, and the Supreme Court held uh, there was a lawsuit brought by these electors, the ones I write about in the, in the intro of the book, saying uh, you can't stop us. The, the framers said that we can do this however we want. The Supreme Court ruled unanimously that no, uh, they can't, and that, in fact, states have always set conditions for their electors and that they have that authority under the Constitution unquestionably. Uh, and so, so that is really no longer an issue. States can... You know, faithful electors, if they were ever an issue before, are certainly not an issue now. So we no longer will see faithless electors. Uh, did this uh, decision resolve any of the internal contradictions of the electoral college system? I think it just revealed that, like, one of the central arguments that people have always made in defense of the college was completely hollow because it's never actually operated that way. Let me just, just to give you one other framing of this. But wait, 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 before, let's stick yeah. to the Supreme Court for just a moment, yeah. because as you yeah. point out, it was unanimous ruling, uh, which comes as a bit of a surprise to me, knowing who was on the court at that time. Well, the, 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 you know, the, to be fair, the Supreme Court uh, often issues many unanimous rulings. Uh, they, they tend to be in cases that don't have a high profile. It's usually those kind of big, uh, you know, hot button social cases that get the 5-4 vote. So, it's not that surprising to me. I think actually a lot of people who watched the court predicted a nine a nine nothing ruling in that case, um, or an, uh, I think it might have been eight nothing eight zero because I think uh, Justice Kagan uh, was recused. But um, let me just, just on the point of faithless electors, I just want to say this: anybody who thinks or worries about faithless electors should look to the election of two thousand. Remember, in two thousand, that was the last split election we had before. Uh, 2016, when the Electoral College went for a different candidate than the popular vote did. You know, George W. Bush lost the popular vote to Al Gore by more than half a million votes. And his electoral vote, you know, it, you know, it hinged on winning Florida. And even with Florida's 25 electors, he would only be at 271, right? You need 270 electoral votes to become president. That's a majority. He had 271. He had one over the majority. It would have taken just two electors in the country to say, hey, this is not fair. It's not fair that the candidate who got fewer votes nationally becomes president. We're going to vote for somebody else. It didn't happen. Not a single Republican elector defected and went faithless. And that is the reason that I'm saying is that they are there precisely because they are partisans, precisely because they want the vote for their candidate. So it's no surprise and it will never happen or make a difference in the outcome of an election in the future either. Although Florida did eliminate the possibility of hanging chads for the future. Um, <laughs> wasn't a, a proposed constitutional amendment made that would have replaced the Electoral College with a system based on the popular vote uh, during the uh, to, when President Nixon was in power? 
So this is the this is I think the most fascinating moment in the history of the Electoral College in the country's history, and it's one that I didn't know about at all when I started writing this book or before I started writing this book. Um, but in the mid 1960s, a senator uh, from Indiana, Birch Bayh, a first-term senator, took up the task of trying to amend the Electoral College out of the Constitution and replace it with a popular vote. This was he started in 1966. And by 1968, you have 80% of Americans on board with a national popular vote. They want a national popular vote. And as you said, even after his election in that crazy year of 1968, Richard Nixon gets on board. He agrees. He says popular vote should be the way we choose the president. Republicans across the country, Democrats across the country favorite. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce supports it, the AFL-CIO, the League of Women Voters. I mean, this is a, a bipartisan issue with 80% support. I can't think of anything in the country right now that has that kind of support. And they push hey. it all the way to uh, – sorry. No, I, I, you would have thought with that kind of support, uh, it would the states would ratify. Well, that. you had – so, so you, you, the survey suggested that – uh, you know, 38 states, which is what you need to ratify for an amendment to, be, to join the Constitution, uh, were you, they were very close to getting that number of, of states on board. Uh, in 1969, the House of Representatives overwhelmingly passed this amendment. So, you know, you need to pass both houses of Congress by a two-thirds vote. They passed it by about 80 percent, 339 to 70, I think. The only remaining hurdle was the Senate, where it also needed to pass with two-thirds. It never gets to a vote because Southern segregationist senators filibuster it until it dies in 1970. And that was the end of the last real and the only significant effort to abolish the Electoral College from the Constitution. So Southern segregationists felt that the Electoral College was to the advantage of segregationist states? It was. Uh, you know, the, they, they understood exactly which side their bread was buttered on. Uh, you know, they were the descendants of slaveholders themselves, and they knew that they had this benefit uh, all throughout American history. They knew that winner-take-all meant that they controlled the way the electors moved in their states. So uh, there was a majority of, you know, white conservatives in those states, and that they could essentially send all of their electors to uh, to vote for their candidate, and the black voters in that state uh, were essentially made voiceless. Hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's an amazing, uh, you know, turning point in American history where once again, uh, the interests of white supremacists, uh, particularly in the South, uh, can keep in place uh, wildly inequitable uh, systems of, of our democracy. Although Richard Nixon beat Hubert Humphrey in the 1968 election, why was there concern about the disparity between the popular vote and the electoral vote? Well, so there were a bunch of things happening in that election, right? That was the last straw. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that those segregationists we were just talking about, you know, they had just tried to filibuster the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, uh, and they had failed, right? Those become federal law in the mid-60s, completely sort of transforming American democracy, and that itself happens on the heels of the one person, one vote cases at the Supreme Court. And those were cases that also transformed American democracy by making all people count equally in the election of their, uh, in their representatives, no matter where they live. When those things have happened, suddenly people are thinking, I think, very differently about what it means to live in a democracy and whose voices count. 
And then you have the election of 1968. And as you say, Nixon does beat Humphrey. Uh, he beats him by a hair. But the key problem with that election was not Nixon or Humphrey. It was the third party candidate, George Wallace, who was, you know, the former Alabama governor and a staunch segregationist. Wallace got in the race. He threw in his hat, not because he thought he could win, but because he was going to keep either Nixon or Humphrey from winning a majority of electoral votes. Now, that is a critical strategy because you need a majority of electoral votes to win the presidency. You need now, today, it's 270 electoral votes. Wallace wanted to keep both Nixon and Humphrey below 270. And then what would happen is, according to the Constitution, the, vote, the election is thrown into the House of Representatives where every state gets a single vote, just one vote, not based on their membership, but a single vote for the presidency. And what Wallace believed was if he could get to that point, he could essentially extort whatever promises he wanted uh, from either candidate and say, you know, I'll give you my I'll give you my electors uh, uh, and, and, and then I get my policies enacted. Right. So Wallace had 46 electors from the southern states. He won the southern states outright. It's the last time a third party candidate has won a single electoral vote was that year. And. He didn't succeed. Uh, actually, Richard Nixon wins a, a majority of the electoral vote and becomes president. But the combination of all of that, Americans said, whoa, this is how we elect our president. This is crazy. And that was the final push that led uh, to uh, the vote in the House of Representatives that led to Richard Nixon supporting a, a, a shift to the popular vote. Uh, and then, as, as I said, it was the segregationists in the end who drove the effort to kill that. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California, well, to the New York Island. My guest on Leonard Lopate at Large today is Jesse Wegman, who is a member of the New York Times editorial board and the author of Let the People Pick the President, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College. It is published by St. Martin's Press. Let's talk about some other interesting cases uh, in, uh, involving the Electoral College. Weren't there some unusual events during the election of 1872 when Horace Greeley, who was a candidate, died after the popular vote was counted, but before the Electoral College voted? Uh, yeah, he put his electors in a tough position. Uh, yeah. But, but yes, so, 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 so yes, I mean, you do have these uh, one-off situations where uh, the way the system was designed doesn't, doesn't operate uh, as expected. Uh, I think the bigger uh, mix-up happened four years later in 1876, and that's uh, that's that's one of the most interesting and important uh, kind of electoral college cockups that we've ever seen, and it, it and it actually ended up leading to the end of Reconstruction and the rise of uh, the Jim Crow era. So uh, once again, the electoral college is implicated in the preservation of white supremacy in America. 
And I, and I want to get to that, but before we do, let's go back to 1872. So right. Horace Greeley um, has all these electors. Um, they couldn't vote for him. Uh, did they just vote for Ulysses S. Grant, who probably would have won anyway? Uh, no, actually, uh, I believe 63 of uh, 63 of uh, uh, Greeley's electors still voted for him. I think he has 66 <laughs> electors. And, and they still voted for him. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I guess technically you could call, I, I don't know if you could call them faithless because uh, they were voting for their man, but he was dead. Uh, so, um, but, he, but he had lost the election anyway, so it didn't matter. You know, the, 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 uh, hmm. it, it didn't matter. Anymore. So what happened four years later? Uh, what, well, so what, that's, that's, yeah, so that's the race between uh, Sam, Samuel Tilden, the Democrat, and Rutherford Hayes, who's the Republican. Uh, that was an, a really insane election. Uh, when, when, when the votes are in, uh, Tilden is one vote away from an Electoral College majority. He's at 184. Um, and you need 185 votes at that time, electoral votes, to become president. Uh, but multiple states, uh, most in the South, had uh, what are known as competing slates of electors. Remember how I said... Uh, you know, each candidate uh, has his or her own slate of electors. Well, what happens if a state, you know, has a dispute within itself and uh, different two slates of competing electors are sent to Congress? That's what happened in uh, Florida, Georgia, and I think South Carolina that year. Um, they sent two competing slates of electors. There were battles over, the fight was over uh, whether Democrats in the South, you know, Democrats in the South had basically, um, it, uh, terrorized black voters and, and, and intimidated them and driven down turnout and thrown out ballots. You know, it was all kinds of bad behavior. Uh, and so there was a, a fight over who had legitimately won uh, in the South. And uh, there, there, what ended up happening was Congress established a commission to determine how to award. There were, in, in all, there were 20 electoral votes. There was one also in Oregon for a separate issue. So there are 20 electoral votes in question, and uh, Hayes has 165, and, uh, and Tilden has 184. So you think all Tilden needs is one more, and he becomes president. Well, this commission uh, was staffed with a 15-member commission with an 8-7 Republican majority uh, for reasons that are very complicated to explain. But uh, they end up voting every single one of those 20 electoral votes. Uh, they vote, they, they give them to Hayes, the Republican. He wins by a single electoral vote, 185 to 184, uh, and, uh, and, and becomes the president. Um, part of the deal uh, that he agreed to as, as in order to get those 20 votes was to pull the last remaining federal troops from the South, uh, and thus ending the period of uh, Reconstruction that we know of as the moment when black Americans were finally brought into uh, the pol political system and were able to serve as representatives and lawmakers. Um, he ended that period, Jim Crow began, and we, we went 80 more years before uh, we had anything approaching a representative democracy in America. So we can blame the Electoral College for the institution of Jim Crow as well. In, I think in, the American, yes. In 1913, the 17th Amendment provided for the direct election of senators. Wasn't that a dramatic shift from what the founders had envisioned? And was there any effort at that point to change the Electoral College? It was a huge shift. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest of all, right, in terms of the concept, what the framers' conception of what the country was, uh, that was that was just earth shattering to, to actually give the vote uh, of senators to the people. Before that, state legislatures had chosen the senators. And I think 
a lot of people saw the design of the Constitution as really supporting that system. However, I really think that it's important to remember that that reform, that uh, the 17th Amendment, really is in line with this larger arc of America becoming a more democratic place. Really, from the start, you have reforms that are expanding American democracy, making it more direct, more inclusive, from the inclusion, you know, the abolition of property, you know, uh, property qualifications, so uh, letting poor white people vote to abolishing slavery and letting black people vote to, uh, you know, letting women vote, right, half of the adult population, all the way up until 1972 when uh, uh, they passed an amendment, or I think 71 or 72, uh, when they passed the 26th Amendment allowing 18-year-olds to vote. So that, that expansion, that giving the direct, the direct vote of senators to the people was just another step on that arc of uh, a more democratic country. What's the national popular vote interstate compact? So that is uh, a, it's a, a, it's an, a project that was developed about 15 years ago, and it's uh, really the most, I think, clever and elegant way to get us to a popular vote that has yet been devised. And the amazing thing about it is that it doesn't touch the Constitution at all. It actually uses the Electoral College as it was designed in the Constitution to effectuate a popular vote on the national level. And the way that it works is, let's go back to those state winner-take-all laws. So we've talked about this a few times, where states award their electors based on how uh, the, whoever gets the most votes in their state. That is a state law. It's nowhere in the Constitution. States can change it whenever they like. So the idea behind this compact, which is just an agreement among states, it's a contractual agreement that states sign, is that states agree to award their electors not to the winner of their state, but to the winner of the votes in all 50 states and D.C. combined. When states representing 270 electoral votes, remember that's the majority that you need to win the presidency, join this compact, then you automatically make the president, uh, the, 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 you automatically make the person who wins the most votes in the country the president. And that solved this problem that's caused by the winner-take-all states. Now, didn't most of the states that signed on, uh, weren't they controlled by Democrats at the time that they joined? Yes, they were all, so far 15 states have joined, and, and plus D.C., and together they equal 196 electoral votes. So you're only 74 votes away from the compact taking effect and electing the president by a popular vote. However, as you say, that's correct, all of those states, are Democratic-led states. Now, because they assumed that the Democrats would invariably get more votes nationally. I, I wouldn't even put it that way. Here's how I would put it, is the Democrats were clearly the aggrieved party, right? So in two, both 2000 and 2016, they win uh, more votes in the country and they lose the presidency. So I do think there is a sense that, hey, we're winning and yet we're still losing. That's not fair. And, and on, in the converse, Republicans say, hey, we don't mind this system. It's helping us get the presidency. Um, I think that it's really a mistake to think about this in partisan terms, even though it looks inextricably partisan from our perspective now. And that's because... Parties shift, demographics shift, states change their allegiances, uh, and I don't think either party can feel confident that it has a lock on the uh, Electoral College uh, for more than a cycle or two. The best example of this is in Texas, 
where today we are watching uh, become a toss-up state. You know, I, I think the odds of Joe Biden pulling it out are, are somewhat uh, less than even. But even still, the fact that we're talking about Texas as a swing state, Texas, with its 38 electoral votes, should terrify Republicans. Because without winning Texas, Republicans have no plausible path to the presidency. And then I think they revisit the idea of whether this electoral college idea is such a good one. On the other hand, if the Republicans win the popular vote this year, would New York electors have to vote Republican because of the compact? Uh, no, only because the compact is not yet in effect. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, once the compact were to take effect, states would be awarded, states that were member states, and New York is a member state, uh, it, it joined a few years ago, I think in 2014, uh, Governor Cuomo uh, signed it into law. Uh, states uh, that are member states would automatically have to give their electors to the winner of the national popular vote, the most votes in the country, yes. But this is kind of an, it's been called an end run around the electoral college uh, because it's a way of avoiding having to come up with a constitutional amendment. Well, calling it an end run presumes that the Electoral College was built to do one specific thing and that it does that. But as I've been uh, you know, explaining, the Electoral College that the framers designed left open tons of room for states to decide for themselves how to award electors. So if you think of the Electoral College as fundamentally a state-based institution, which it is, then you should have no problem with states deciding to award their electors differently than they do today. They've been changing their method of allocation throughout American history. As we talked about, the congressional district approach is one that two states use today and other states have used throughout history. And, you know, so, so to change it and say, you know what, instead we're going to give our electors to the winner of the most votes in the country because, you know, we think that helps us overall. That's all states have ever done in choosing it, uh, how to award their electors is what's going to be good for us, right? So if states do that again today, I don't see that's no different. It's not an end, any more an end run around the Constitution than the statewide winner-take-all rule is today. My guest is Jesse Wegman. His book, Let the People Pick the President, the case for abolishing the Electoral College. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. I'm Leonard Lopate. Doesn't the Electoral College map give us a false picture of the divisions of our country rather than solid blocks of red and white? Isn't the, the whole country actually different shades of purple? And don't uh, uh, political leanings bleed across state lines? Absolutely. I mean, the cover of my book is, you know, this kind of wash of, of purple uh, with a few blotches of both red and blue. And it really is meant to illustrate it's, a, it's, an, it's an actual image of uh, counties uh, in uh, Virginia, North Carolina, and how they voted in 2016, um, you know, gauged, you know, purple is sort of more 50-50 and more red is Republican, more blue is Democratic. And it really is meant to illustrate that, you know, that those red and blue blocks that we look at every four years are just a visual artifact of this state winner-take-all rule. And that they actually obscure the fact that there are millions of Republicans and millions of Democrats in all states. I, I think the example that comes most readily to mind is in 2016, four and a half million people in California voted for Donald Trump. Four and a half million people is more than most states, their entire population. And yet all of those people might as well have not existed at all when it came time for California to cast its 55 electoral votes because California uses winner take all. The same thing happened to Democrats in Texas that year. 
happened to Republicans in New York and Democrats in South Carolina. You know, when you when you map that across the whole country, you're erasing tens of millions of voters. You're making them basically invisible. And I think that's a real violation of our central idea of representative democracy, which is that, you know, everybody's vote should count. Everyone's vote should count equally and everyone's vote should matter to the outcome of the election. It's apparent when you're driving down a road and looking at lawn signs, um, I like to count how many are going for each candidate. And it depends on what road you're going down, but uh, it, it isn't always the way the election is going to turn out. Now, during the, the 2012 election, early exit polls suggested that Mitt Romney might win the popular vote and lose the Electoral College to Barack Obama. Didn't Ironically, Donald Trump then tweet that the Electoral College is a disaster. He did. He tweeted that on election night of 2012. Uh, uh, you know, and it really just I, I all I could say when I saw that is amen. You know, I, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. And he was expressing the feeling that everybody has when majority rule is violated. This is the way we run every election in this country, except for the biggest one of all. You know, everybody wants the person who gets the most votes to win. And I guarantee you, Republicans will rage about the Electoral College if it were ever to go in the other direction. And Donald Trump's tweet is just a perfect example of that. All it took was the hint that it might happen. And he was, you know, off to the races. He later tweeted that night in a tweet he deleted, uh, more votes equals a loss, revolution. Right. And I thought, yeah, for sure. That's how it feels. And, you know, you know, now try feeling now try actually losing the, pop, the the election when you win the popular vote twice in the last 20 years. And you understand why uh, at least Democrats right now are pretty furious about it. But throughout history, people of both parties have understood how unfair and undemocratic the system is. But I suspect that after he won the election uh, in 2016, he didn't complain about the Electoral College anymore. Uh, to the contrary, <laughs> he actually kept complaining. He, he even he did. He, he won, complained even oh, though yeah. it, it remember, gave him the election, despite the fact that he didn't get the popular vote. Minutes? Yep. Remember his interview on 60 Minutes about five days after the election? And he said, I would prefer a popular vote election. You know, if you say you win 100 million and your opponent wins 90 million, that's a better way to run it. He was saying that after he won the pop, the Electoral College. You know, he also claimed, you know, he said, you know, well, I won. I actually won the popular vote if you discount all the undocumented people who voted in, illegally in California. I mean, obviously, it's untrue. Uh, but the, but the point is, the, the, the sentiment behind that is you are legitimate if you are chosen by a majority. So he needed to feel that he had been chosen by a majority or would have been. But for the you know, cheating of Democrats. Uh, and I think that was a very telling remark. Right. That was a telling argument that he made that it, it, it wasn't simply, oh, I won under the rules. It was. I really did. I really was the choice of a majority of Americans. We know that wasn't true. It won't be true again today. But uh, the, the fact that he wanted it is just a demonstration that everybody feels the legitimacy of leadership depends on majority rule. Do you think that abolishing the Electoral College, college might lead to more moderate politics? So the last chapter of my book is uh, a really interesting experiment in which I interview um, campaign managers and field directors from uh, the last 25 years of Democratic and Republican uh, presidential campaigns. And I asked them this question. I said, what would change about our politics, about our campaigns, about our presidential governance, if you had to win a popular vote to become president rather than win the Electoral College? 
And almost to a person, they said, oh, we would much rather do it by popular vote. And that's because they saw firsthand, this is their job to win elections. They saw firsthand how corrosive it is in a representative democracy for the candidates to really be competing over these tiny slivers of voters. And I mean, you know, in the, the, the news pages of the Times the other day, we had a story that, that talked about the 20 counties in America that are going to decide this election. 20 counties, right? In a country of 330 million people. That's just insane that, that the candidates will focus on those counties. And understandably, right, they're not being stupid about it. They're, they're, they're playing by the rules of the game. But those rules basically invalidate the views of more than 100 million Americans every four years, right? So I think that's really the key here is that you, when you have a popular vote election, the candidates have to win votes everywhere. And what that leads to, I, I would argue, is more moderation, because I think by definition, when more people come out, you, get the, you, you have more moderates. When, when it's a lower turnout election, you get the more extreme sides of the basis. Uh, and, we're, we're pretty much out of time, but uh, I'm assuming that uh, if we got rid of the Electoral College, campaigning would be done differently right now. It's so obvious that they're campaigning for electoral votes, not for popular votes. Um, that's right. Yeah. Campaigning, and, would, and, campaigning would change. And I thank you so much for being on our show. It's been fascinating. Uh, really, um, I, I suspect most listeners learned all sorts of things that they didn't know about uh, the way our system works. Jesse Wegman, who is a member of the New York Times uh, editorial board, where he has written about the Supreme Court and legal affairs since 2013. His book, Let the People Pick the President, How the Case for Abolish, the, the Case for Abolishing the Electoral College. It's published by St. Martin's Press. What a pleasure. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to special to segment producer Deborah Freeman for preparing today's interview. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast in iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to all of our past shows on our website, LondonLocatedLarge.com. Uh, if you just if you want to comment on our shows and just uh, say hello, you, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I'd like to take just a minute to ask for you to support this station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique, in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Uh, really helped this uh, historic station, the last on the New York City dial that's completely listener-sponsored to remain on the air. Again, that number, 516-620-3602, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And we hope you'll join us again tomorrow when filmmakers Nelson G. Navarrete and Max Calcedo will discuss their new documentary, A La Calle, about the current situation in Venezuela. But first, if you haven't already, be sure to go vote.